What's up, people? Welcome to the State of the Universe. My name's Brendan, I'm your host, and today I'm sitting down with Dr. Stephen Pakala, and we're talking about the thing that is at the forefront of almost all science in today's world. You can look at every generation. You can look at every scientific generation, all the way from the 16th century, if you want to, up to current day. And in each generation, you can pick out one scientific question that seems to rule them all. One thing that captivates society, that captivates the minds of scientists. And in many cases, that question changes depending on the field that you're talking about. Maybe if you're in astronomy, you are thinking in today's day and age about gravitational waves. That is the hot topic of astrophysics now in my generation. But there's always one scientific concept that seems to pervade all fields. It seems to go above and beyond localizations like what field do you study? You know, what's your specific subject matter? And climate change is that thing for today's generation. Everyone is thinking about climate change. Every scientist is maybe not researching climate change, but nevertheless having to talk about it. And the reason they're having to talk about it is because now more than ever, we are looking at this as a real thing that needs to be addressed. And more and more and more the population is getting on board with that idea. And it is beginning to pervade almost every single field, whether it be economics, whether it be astronomy, whether it be physics, whether it be math modeling. Climate change is beginning to become the subject matter on everyone's mind. And you notice that on this show, almost with every single one of my guests, regardless of what they believe, regardless of what they study, whether it's a chemist, whether it's a biologist, whether it's a physicist, whether it's uh, someone who just writes books, they all have on their mind the subject of climate change and the way that it's raveled throughout our society. And so I thought that I could get Stephen Pakala on the show. Stephen is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton, and he is also the director of the Princeton Environmental Institute. Alongside that, he's the, he co-directs the Carbon Mitigation Initiative, which is a collaboration between Princeton, British Petroleum, and the Ford Motor Company. And they try to find solutions to the problem of global warming, but not by changing things overnight, because things don't change overnight in complex societies. Things have to change gradually. And one of the things that him and his group try to do is come up with feasible carbon mitigation mechanisms, or at the very least, study their effectiveness. And he's very knowledgeable on this topic. He's very knowledgeable on carbon mitigation technologies, whether it be actually physically sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, or whether it be adapting the way that we burn fossil fuels to eliminate the amount of carbon we put into the atmosphere. Across the entire range of climate change, he is one expert who, above them all, knows an incredible amount. And so I thought, rather than you know, me sitting here with people who may not have all of the information. I would sit down with someone who does have all of the information, someone who is incredibly intelligent, incredibly knowledgeable, articulate, everything you need to be in order to communicate this stuff effectively 
with the people, you, listening right now. So I thank you for tuning into the show. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Check out the Patreon account. You can support the Patreon account. You can support this show, and I hope you do that. And that's patreon.com slash the state of the universe. You can also check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. We're everywhere to be found. And rather than me reading off URLs, because that will lose, uh, let me just check everyone. Uh, here's what I need you to do. Just go to the stateoftheuniverse.com. All one word. Check it out. All the links are there. I thank you for tuning in. You're the greatest. I love you all. Enjoy the talk. And if throughout the conversation, maybe three or four times, if you notice that maybe a word or two that's, that Steve says gets drug out, you know, that's due to connection issues uh, that we suffered. Just a tiny bit. You might not even notice them. And if you do notice them, they don't detract from the subject matter. You're not going to miss any content. I just want to let you know that your headphones aren't dying, that your phone isn't breaking, that your speakers aren't bad. They might be, but I'm not saying that. That's all. I'm just letting you know that if you notice that, I apologize for that. It's an artifact that cannot be removed from the audio. Enjoy. Steve. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I'm glad to have you here. It's a it's a it's a good time to have you here. Okay, we'll get we'll get into specifics in a second, but I gotta t- start with the story. Okay, so let me st- let me start this off right. So it's it's November 21st, and I'm relaxing the day before Thanksgiving. I'm sitting on my couch. I've already decided to give up on work for the for the holiday. I'm done. It's it's time to sit back, stretch my feet out. And like any, you know, typical 23-year-old, I'm on Twitter, of course, and I see a tweet from none other than the President of the United States of America on this day, and this tweet reads, Brutal and extended cold blasts could shatter all records. Whatever happened to global warming? Question mark. This isn't uncommon for Donald Trump to say. Uh, he's shared a lot of climate change doubts for many, many years. And frankly, it is not even an uncommon belief amongst people. So a person in your position who spent a large part of your career working on understanding and combating climate change, how do you react to something like that? What what goes through your head? Do you get discouraged? How do you even compartmentalize something like that? Yeah, so um, long ago, um, I acknowledged that the phenomenon here was uh, political rather than scientific and also dangerous to the United States of America. And um, because the policy implications of the climate problem were thought to be um, the opposite to or opposed to Um, those that the Republican Party would otherwise want. Um, For whatever reason, it was decided, probably not even overtly at first, to question the underlying science, to question evidence. In other words, to allow belief, prior belief, to trump evidence. And many of us said all along that this never ends well. All right? And and 
and we've seen an escalation of claims of fake news every time there's evidence that isn't that now, now everybody does this at some level but mm -hmm. also i think there's widespread and bipartisan agreement that we've got real trouble here uh, and it's primarily inside the republican party platform now that doesn't mean that individual congress people and senators and others uh, don't really understand the evidence the evidence of course is, is really quite clear it's overwhelming clear and getting and getting more so all the time and so i think that we in the scientific community and others have to at this point help the republican party to come back to an evidence-based position on climate and i think that might help the party um, uh, the portions of the party who've departed from evidence on other issues to come back to that too. We desperately need that in the U.S. Uh, because we need a set of conservative solutions, uh, which are sometimes better than those that would be proposed by liberals. I agree. I agree. I, this is oftentimes turned into a political issue when in fact it's not a political issue. And do you think part of that comes from the way in which some people communicate science, I see a lot of this on social media, the way that climate change is communicated is through sort of fear-mongering, through scare tactics, through if you don't change now, the world will end. And while this stuff might be true, do you think that this just sort of raises raises the eyebrow of people who listen but don't understand? It makes them say, wait a minute, I look outside and the world looks just fine. The sky isn't falling the trees aren't dying, and, and that creates a denial. And do you think there's maybe a better way to do the education rather than saying, you know, if you, for example, this recent uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change, uh, two months ago, I think they released the this report, and they say we must keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius. They must We must keep rising global temperatures below that number. And what are they at right now? It's one degree. <clears throat> it's at one degree. So we need to we need to limit it to another half degree. And the picture they paint is a very bleak one, is a very uh, even scary one, if I may say so myself. And again, these are real consequences. But is scare tactics the best way to handle it, do you think? Well, to be clear, the IPCC 1.5 degree not advocate a 1.5 degree target. All right. Um, what the IPCC 1.5 degree uh, report did was to to dis to to discuss what the damages would be with a 1.5 degree target as opposed to a two degree target, and also what it would cost to meet 1.5 degrees and what the other implications would be. Mm -hmm. And they're specifically prohibited from advocating a particular target. So they were reporting on. They're actually summarizing the published literature on the things I just said, all right? Now, it gets reported that they're advocating a 1.5 degree target, but the, but they're not doing that as a formal matter, and pe people should be clear about that distinction with the IPCC. That doesn't mean that the organization doesn't have problems, it's just that that, that is not overtly one of them. In any case, um, I, I don't know um, the best way to communicate to the public about climate change. If if we did know, then we wouldn't be in the pickle that we're in. It's very true. 
So and so, I do know that you know um, fear mongering um, doesn't work when people think of it as fear mongering. On the other hand, we're probably evolved to reassess risk after we've been damaged. All right. Yes. And so, for example, those who've suffered Hurricane Harvey or one of the other extreme rainfall events that are now attributable to fossil emissions mm-hmm. in, 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 to a significant extent, right? Or wildfires, you know, wildfires in the West, most analyses now attribute more, more than half of them to the climate change to date, mm-hmm. right? More climate change than management, which means that if your house burned down, there's a, there, there's a better than even odds that it was because, because of fossil emissions, right? Yeah. And, and um, so, so my suspicion is that that acknowledgement after you've been damaged, you're really ready in a sense for some fear mongering because, because you're evolved now to assess, reassess risk. You're saying, exactly. okay, this actually something's damaging me. Yes. And I think the problem with climate change has been much more that the science has been incomplete and so that the solutions have been nebulous. They've been far off in time. They've been diffuse in space. Mm-hmm. And in short, they're not consistent with the sorts of risks that we're evolved to assess, right? Yeah. Which are concrete and you know and, and ever and, and present right now. Beyond that, we, we have lacked historically cost-effective alternatives to fossil emissions. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, there's this political piling on. So it's kind of, it's no wonder that there's now changed, right? So it is increasingly possible to um, attribute individual extreme weather events that damage people to uh, fossil emissions. Um, It is now true because of events in the last 10 years that a non-emitting energy system, if you can wave a magic wand and replace ours with it in the U.S., would cost about the same as the emitting one we have today. Spectacular technological achievement of humanity, almost unchronicled, all right? And finally, the political landscape, I think, is starting to soften, even though it looks bleak with the Trump administration, particularly in Congress. It looks to me as though um, there are a lot of members that know that the jig is kind of up, that the damages are becoming too obvious. Yeah, what what you said about about fear mongering working once you've been impacted is absolutely representative in the data. Uh, if you look at the Yale climate, did you ever look at this Yale climate survey? My listeners are probably annoyed by me talking about it because I swear I bring it up on every single episode. But this Yale climate survey is amazing. It's this website you go on. No, I know about it. Yeah, yeah. I know. and and. Uh, you know, you can look at the regions of the United States and their belief on climate change, and you can see the coastal areas. The belief is above average in these coastal areas. But when you go to a place like Wyoming or Montana, or you go to a place like, you know, Kansas, or, or something where the impacts maybe aren't as pronounced yet, yeah. yet, <laughs> yeah, yeah. then the belief isn't there yet. The belief just doesn't exist. And so, yeah. Yeah, I talked about this a lot with with some other guests. You know, I have an anecdote there that's probably useful. About 15 years ago, 
I was, you know, they had these, um, back then the big deal was what they called a telepresence facility. It's kind of like what you're, you and I are doing right now on Skype, right? But, but this one is a conference table split down the middle. Half of it is one place, half of it, and is virtual. Half of it is another. It looks like you're sitting around a conference table. Yeah. They still have these things, but they were dedicated rooms and they were state of the art then. So I was in Houston, Texas, in an oil company one, talking to people on the North Slope of Alaska. And I was there to talk to a, um, a oil company execs about climate change. And and so at the time, you know, I would start start by by um, expressing by summarizing how strong the evidence was. Right. Just mm-hmm. just to get that off the right. And I started in with the people from Alaska who were sitting looked like on the opposite side of the table and they stopped me about you know, 30 seconds in and said, wait, you don't understand. We live in Alaska. There are deniers here. We work with the impact of climate change every single day. The permafrost is melting. Our buildings are sinking into the North Slope. You know, they just went on and on and on. And I remember thinking, you know, the impacts come to the Arctic first. Mm -hmm. And they're about 15 years ahead of the temperate zone. And they're going to come to us all. Mm-hmm. And this, and that's going to kind of obviate this debate when it does. And so I think that's what you're seeing on the coast right now, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, while researching you, while researching the work you do, I came across an article that was written about you in 2007. Now, f- for context, in 2007, I was in middle school. And in 2007, you were advocating that we prepare for climate change that we start preparing for climate mitigate or carbon mitigation and that we start working on carbon capture technologies in 2007 now what was the support like for that sort of idea back then compared to now well you know it, it if um <clears throat> it, so let me the, the difference um back in in 2003 Mm-hmm. All right. The uh, George Bush, uh, Secretary of Energy, used to give a speech, and it and the speech was they had they'd come further than the 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 Trump team has actually moved a bit backwards, right? So the user argument is first you deny the science, and then you say yeah okay, but even if uh, the science is there, uh, we don't have cost-effective technology. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, we have cost-effective technology. And there's, there's a whole series of, right, um, of, of pushbacks. And, and the pushback at the time was we didn't have the technology even to get started. And he was, he was, he was fond of getting a speech in which he said we need a, a discovery as fundamental as the use of electricity by Faraday in the 19th century before we can really get going here. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, a guy named Rob Sokolow, who's a, a, a physicist um, um, and is now uh, retired, and I decided that, you know, we actually did have the technology to get started. And so we wrote this paper with an audience of one as its focus. And the, the, the paper described technologies that were capable of being scaled up today to 1 billion metric tons of carbon of averted emissions in 50 years time. And we were currently at 7 billion metric tons globally, uh, projected to rise to 14 
a billion metric tons by mid-century. And so we said, look, let's just suppose we wanted to, to get started to leave emissions flat for the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. About 7 billion tons, or about today's amount by 2050, right? And that left a series of wedges that grew from zero averted emissions today to 1 billion metric tons of averted emissions in 50 years' time. Mm-hmm. And seven of those would keep emissions flat for 50 years. So we said, are there any technologies that can do that? And the answer was there were 14 already in the marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. And so we said, look, this is actually pretty interesting. There's a way to get started. And and he never gave that speech again, okay? (laughs) The paper got cited a few thousand times. So it was a, you know, it was an academic, um, uh, uh, academically uh, 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 looked at. Mm -hmm. But now... Because of technological advancement, we're in a completely different position. The reason we didn't say, how do you get rid of emissions at that time, is that we didn't know how to. We didn't have the technology to do it. Mm-hmm. And now we do because of a series of spectacular advances. And so, so, um, so I mean, that's kind of a long story, but, but the, the, the point is there was a lot of interest in in those statements back then. And there's a lot of interest now. There was just political pushback all along the way mm-hmm. that needs to be broke. And it's really unique in the United States almost, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so carbon mitigation is a simple idea in essence. In fact, if I look at an ordinary person and I say, what does it mean to mitigate carbon? Most people will probably tell me. But in practice, there are a diverse number of ways to actually do it. There are tons of ways in which we could maybe mitigate carbon, whether it's actually physically cutting down the use of fossil fuels, which would be a great idea, or or some way coming up with, with ways to remove it from the atmosphere. Can you give a short introduction to carbon mitigation and where it stands today? What are the types of things we can do to mitigate carbon use? Sure. So, so um. Um, right now I'm involved in an effort where we're actually costing out the complete decarbonization of the U.S. economy by mid-century. All right. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I, th- I don't know what the answer is yet, uh, but, I, but it's funny. The, the, um, um, if you treat it just as a mega project, we're just going to build this thing <clears throat> on schedule, the uncertainties around it are shockingly small. Because we know what it is that we want to build, all right? Right. So, so first of all, mitigation is a reduction in emissions. Positive emissions take CO2, take carbon atoms mm-hmm. uh, in, in organic molecules, either in geologic reservoirs as oil, gas, and coal, or in ecosystems, say as a tropical forest, and put them into the atmosphere after oxidizing them as CO2. That's it. That's it. Mitigation means reducing the rate at which we do that as a species. Yep. Negative emissions do exactly the reverse. I lost lost you for a second. And they put them in a, a, okay. They take CO2 molecules from the atmosphere Mm -hmm. and put them into ecosystems by reforestation or into geologic reservoirs by by injecting say supercritical co2 into those reservoirs mm-hmm. so it's exactly the reverse and the mitigation and um, while there are still net positive emissions going on 
mitigation and negative emissions have exactly equivalent effects on the atmosphere. In other words, failing to burn a gallon of gasoline, failing to combust mm -hmm. it, has exactly the same impact on the atmosphere as combusting that gallon and capturing 10 kilograms of CO2 from the atmosphere and storing it on the surface. Okay, right. The net impact of that bundle of two things, burning the gallon and catching the 10 kilograms of CO2 is zero on the atmosphere, it has mm -hmm. zero effect on the carbon balance of the atmosphere. Not burning a gas gallon of gasoline has zero effect on the atmosphere too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so 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 those are the that's the biggest distinction: mitigation versus negative emissions. Mm -hmm. But they should be thought of as the same toolkit. Now, how would we decarbonize the U.S. economy? Okay, and why is it all of a sudden possible now, whereas it really wasn't cost effective even five years ago? Probably not even three. Mm -hmm. Well, the fundamental reason is that wind and solar are now the cheapest sources of energy we have. Wind and solar in recent contracts, in the right place, new builds, Saudi Arabia and Mexico, have gone for about one and three quarters cents a kilowatt hour. Mm -hmm. Just keeping a coal plant that's all paid off running costs three. Nuclear is 16. New gas is five. This is 1.75, mm -hmm. okay? Cheapest by far. Now, of course, the problem is that it's intermittent, and right. you need a way for producing power when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, mm -hmm. right? And and although we could, in principle, not yet, but maybe soon, level the diurnal load with batteries, mm -hmm. okay? That is the day-night load with yep. batteries. <clears throat> You're never going to build, in my view, a battery that can handle the occasional 10-day doldrums in the mm -hmm. offshore winds. And, and the reason is that because that sort of period might happen once every three years, you can never pay for the battery, you see? Right. Never using it. Mm -hmm. And let alone for seasonal demand for heat. Yeah. And so it becomes really expensive to try to build an all-renewables economy. Calls from the Greens that we have to have an all-renewable economy, in my view, are – Same non-evidence-based belief-trumping um, uh, evidence that 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 we were just bemoaning. Okay, mm -hmm. it, it, and so so how do you level the load? Well, the answer is you can do it in principle with hydro, but we don't have enough hydro. You can do it with nuclear, but there's all kinds of reasons why we're not doing it with nuclear. Mm -hmm. And you can do it with fossil with carbon capture and storage. Yeah. We'll have to now, build a Dyson sphere. That might work. There you go. Dyson sphere would, would <laughs> we need we're we're a ways from that. Yes. <laughs> okay, so Yep. So so um so so carbon capture and storage. The the cheapest way to do it is with natural gas, and it's because natural gas as a molecule has one carbon and four hydrogens. Mm -hmm. So when you burn so it has the highest ratio of hydrogen to carbon of any organic molecule, right? Mm -hmm. That's right, four hydrogens for each carbon. So when you burn it, you're burning mostly hydrogen to make water. Mm -hmm. All right, so you get a lot of energy per CO2 molecule emitted, right? Yeah. And that means that it's cheaper to capture the carbon because there's less of it to capture, the CO2. Mm -hmm. And 
10 years ago, there wasn't enough natural gas, we thought, on the planet to do this, to actually back up an all-electric economy that was half wind and solar. Mm-hmm. But because of unconventional gas, right, fracking, yep. we now have enough. And and 10 years ago, we didn't know, we hadn't really done much carbon capture and storage. And now we've done a huge amount. In the U.S. this year, we're injecting over 60 million metric tons of supercritical CO2 into, into geologic reservoirs, in part because of a little-known bill passed by the a bipartisan uh, bill passed in February of this year that pays $50 a ton for doing so. Mm-hmm. Wait, and how so, much is this? How, how many metric tons? It's more than double the European carbon. Uh, you know, it's really interesting if you ask. So, so that's the backbone of an all-electric economy, uh-huh. right? Wind and solar backed by gas with CCS. Yeah. Okay. None of that stuff was cost effective three years ago. Mm-hmm. Now it is. Okay. Huge, huge advance. Okay. Yeah. In addition, transport, light and medium duty transport, cars and trucks were always the biggest problem because mm-hmm. they're mobile, they're distributed. All of a sudden, batteries leapt out of cell phones, and every major manufacturer is planning on jumping into cars and trucks. So there's been this technological revolution that's been unchronicled that's delivered to us mm-hmm. a cheap way to solve is marvelous, right? It's an all-electric economy, wind and solar backed by gas with CCS with electrification for light and medium-duty vehicles, and then there's a bunch of other pieces to it. Yeah. But that part that I just described is an economy that is about what it would cost consumers today to run, but it doesn't emit anything. And incidentally, in December in the tax bill, buried in the tax bill, and in this In this act passed in February, the Congress of the United States, including – and a lot of this was all Republican votes – passed subsidies on every part of that thing. Mm -hmm. They passed wind and solar subsidies. They passed um, uh, uh, the the carbon capture and storage subsidy I just talked about, the tax credit – and they passed an electric car subsidy. All right. Mm-hmm. So they decided to command and control subsidize all aspects of that new economy. Yeah. And d- I want to go back to something you said. Yeah. Can you repeat the numbers that you brought up when you brought up the $50 carbon capture and storage tax? Yeah. W- what did you say? What are so, the exact numbers again? So the exact numbers are if you capture CO2 in the U.S. and inject it as a supercritical fluid into a reservoir or almost any other way to store it on Mm -hmm. the surface, you can collect a $50 a ton tax credit. That $50 a ton, it's called the 45Q rule. Mm -hmm. And, And that tax credit is larger than, by more than a factor of two, the European carbon price. Yeah. Now, right now, how is that done? Is that done strictly at the level of burning, where you you try to take as much emissions off of the burning process and not into the atmosphere, or is that done with a machine that can actually remove the carbon from the atmosphere? It's all done by well, almost all done by removing carbon from flue gas. Mm-hmm. 
and you have a stream which, depending on the source, is five to ten percent CO two. Yeah, and so you and there's a there are uh, devices that um, absorb the CO two mm-hmm. and then concentrate it, and you inject it into the ground. A direct air capture machine is is chemically very similar, but it's dealing with a problem in which the fluid is much more dilute. All right, so yes. it's four parts per million, 0.04 percent. Mm-hmm. Okay, as 400 parts per million, 0.04 percent, rather than 10, five or 10 percent. Yeah. Right. So, so it's a, but 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 so that's disadvantage. But it also the flue gas problem is one in which you're trying to decarbonize a waste stream, and so mm-hmm. you've got to basically catch it all. Okay. You can't let any of it go by because it's such a concentrated source. It's still a large mass of CO2 making it to the atmosphere. Yeah. Air capture problem is an extraction. You don't have to get all the CO2 out of the air as it goes by. You can just get a fraction of it and have high throughput to capture a lot. Mm -hmm. So there are different problems, and that's confused the physical. um, uh, 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 There was an APS study. American Physical Society study yep. of direct air capture that that uh, was really pessimistic about the technology, but then a bunch of startups have uh, have made real progress nonetheless. Right. And the reason was the main reason was that difference, right? The difference between a cleanup problem and an extraction problem. Yes, I've seen these like machines. I don't know if they're prototypes. I don't know if they can do uh, carbon capture well yet, or if they can even do it at all. But I've seen they look like these giant air conditioners sitting in the middle of a desert or something. And, yes, there's a bunch of startups that uh, do this, and one commercial firm where you can buy a unit now. There's a group called Climate Works in um, uh, Switzerland, mm-hmm. and and the Climate Works machine looks like uh, a washing machine with a fan on it or a or a whole house air conditioner. And it blows air um, into a solid sorbent, and the CO2 sticks to the sorbent. And and uh, it does that for a while until the sorbent starts to get saturated and the efficiency starts to fall off. And then it closes itself up, and it's got really rapid heat transfer. You heat the sorbent up, drive the CO2 off, and it sends it somewhere. And then it opens up again and keeps blowing. That machine is still expensive. It's the first one into the market. And it was because it was designed for a high-cost market in greenhouse CO2. Mm-hmm. There were a bunch of greenhouses in remote places, and they were willing to spend $1,000 a ton on CO2. So this machine that will do it for you for 400 bucks is a good deal, right? You can yeah. just buy these things and attach it to your greenhouse. In the meantime, though, the company – has stacks them up and they built a demonstration plant that does about a thousand tons a year. And they also built a plant in Iceland that absorbs the CO2, uh, it compensates for the CO2 from a power plant. In any case, that company has continued to move the technology forward. And their current estimates is that their next generation machine will have maybe half the cost. There are also a couple of other startups have built or almost have built uh, demonstration plants. And my guess is that the cost will vary, is very likely to come down to a hundred bucks a ton. Mm-hmm. 
within 10 years or so. And 100 bucks a ton of CO2, it, uh, your, your listeners should keep some units in mind because it's a really easy conversion. Because a gallon of gasoline, uh, when combusted, makes almost exactly 10 kilograms of CO2, mm-hmm. 100 bucks a ton equals $1 per gallon on gasoline. Okay. <laughs> okay? And, right. and, and everyone's liking those numbers. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, right. So, 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 so think about this, right? It's 2050 and we've decarbonized our economy, but we can't figure out how to decarbonize air travel. Mm-hmm. And we all like to go on ecotourism and everything else. And it's a good idea for people to see each other. And now airliners are as big a source as cars used to be, which is kind of where it's projected to go. And we've really got to figure out a way to do it, but you've got to run airliners on a chemical fuel. Mm-hmm. And the all renewables types would want you to do it on biofuels, but we've had to double the food production during the same 30 years. Yeah. And we've got too much pressure on arable land to mm-hmm. turn it over to making airliner fuel. Yeah. And and biofuels are still expensive, right? I mean, cellulosic biofuels cost costs a lot to produce. Mm-hmm. More than fossil plus a buck. But let's suppose you have a direct air capture machine and you can say, look. I'm going to sell some fossil fuel to airliners, but I'm going to make room in the atmosphere for them first when I sell them. And it costs an extra buck a gallon to yeah. do that. You know, you could, that's not hard, right? No, that's, and, yeah. and that technology is very close in my view. Yeah, here's what we need. We need some device similar to this, but but on a micro scale where I, where I can just strap it on my air conditioner. And then everyone <laughs> can buy one. And everyone can strap it onto their air conditioner. And then you can, you know, you get... You get a metric ton of, I don't know, you fill up your little bottle, right? You, you, there's a little bottle attached to your air conditioner. You fill it up. You bring it to the grocery store. They hand you 15 bucks. You're like, yeah, let's you know, let's go fill up more bottles. That's the way to do it. It's really cool, actually. This is something that happens in, in New York State where I live, and I, I imagine New Jersey is the same. Um, there's the you, you get refunds on plastic bottles that you buy if you bring them back to the store. So you, you, you pay, you know, say you buy – four water water bottles at the store it'll be whatever the cost of the water is plus 20 cents five cents per bottle and then if you return those bottles to the store you put them in the machine you get 20 cents out so there's an there's effectively you are encouraging people to to not throw the bottles away but to bring them back and in that way we can dispose of them in an appropriate way and i would love to see something like that be able to exist for carbon capture as well where you can you can incentivize the consumer, you know, all of these people. There's so many people out here. You can incentivize all of them to set up some machine that's cost effective for them, and then makes them thirty dollars a month or something. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 one problem with that as a model, but it might not be uh, entirely a problem. But just one, so one thing to get on the table is. The reason the carbon and climate problem is a problem is how much CO2 we emit as a species and as individuals. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., we've got what? Between 300 and 350 million people right right now. Yep. And we've got maybe five and a half billion tons of CO2 emitted annually. Okay, that means that each person um, has – is responsible for something like 15 tons of CO2 emissions per Yeah, my air conditioner is not going to collect 15 tons. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, exactly. 15 tons, 30,000 pounds. 
mm-hmm. right? Sort of uh, uh, eight Cadillacs. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. And, you know, you don't think about it. You don't think when, when you put gasoline in your tank and drive your car around that the CO2 you're emitting weighs a lot more than the gasoline you put into the car. Mm-hmm. And it's because each one of those carbon molecules in, in inside the gasoline, you know, it's carbon and a bunch of hydrogens and a few oxygens. Mm-hmm. But with with CO2, it's each carbon has two whopping heavy oxygen atoms attached to it. And so the thing weighs 44 twelfths as much as a carbon atom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, when you talk about carbon capture and this carbon capture and storage, do you look at this as a long-term solution or merely a transitional phase to try to get all of our other technologies up to par? Well, you know, so so the way I look at it is just pragmatically, Okay. Um, uh, the, 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 the question is, um, can you do something without unintended consequences that mm-hmm. make it unwise? All right. Now, extractive industries like coal mining and oil, um, uh, harvesting and natural gas drilling and, and, and pumping, all of them have negative externalities that aren't just climate, mm-hmm. right? They're all, they're, you know, oil spills and coal mining has all kinds of problems uh, attached to it. But, but the big problem, the sort of mother and that's problematic. That's why we have this discussion about them all the time. And if we could make the climate problem dimension benign, mm-hmm. then then fossil becomes just one of the energy mixes that we can evaluate. Uh, it becomes a much nearer race. You see what I mean? Yeah. And so am I willing to say that it's a transition fuel? Well, I mean, I, I suppose eventually the fossil will run out, but it's going to be a long, long, long centuries. And, and could we run airliners for centuries on carbon capture and storage offsetting with direct air capture machines, fossil? The answer is probably, right? Mm-hmm. Probably could. Uh, will we need to? Well, probably not. Uh, we'll eventually be able to make photochemical fuels probably, right? Yeah. Right, out of CO2 and sunshine. Mm-hmm. But, but, but I don't see any game-changing environmental reason why we would have to get off of fully decarbonized fuels, right? Or right. fully offset fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's just practical. It's cost and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. This is something I see a lot. And part of me understands it a little bit. I see people say that carbon capture initiatives, like the sorts of things you work on, are absolutely fantastic. I don't see anyone doubting them. But what I do see is is this brought up a lot, this sort of counterpoint, that they could promote the idea that we can continue doing what we're doing as long as we have the ability to capture all the stuff we put in the atmosphere. And I, I, part of me understands where that argument's coming from. Uh, I think that, however, that argument doesn't give humans enough credit. I think that on average, we're, we're pretty intelligent. Most people I talk to, whether it be the person at the grocery store or my colleague at work, 
you know, it doesn't matter. Most of them are on board with the idea of changing not just the way that we handle fossil fuels, but the way that we handle the earth in general, whether it be deforestation, whether it be polluting waterways. Most people are pretty on board with the idea of, of cleaning up the earth. But there is this idea that if we can, it's like this, right? If, if all this, if you were told that, uh, you know, there's an, a filter at the bottom of the stream and the, it filters out everything and the water that flows beyond this little filter is perfectly clean. And from now on, you can just throw your garbage in the stream and your part of the stream will be dirty and you'll look at it and it won't look good and it'll probably smell bad, but you know that the pollution won't go anywhere. Is, is that something that may happen if we get really good at carbon capture initiatives? People are just like, well, let me just, you know, it doesn't matter if I drive my truck, you know, it doesn't matter if I get one mile to the gallon. It doesn't matter, you know, which way we use our energies, as long as we can capture the carbon that they they output. Well, for me, the, <clears throat> I mean, I'm a scientist. Yeah. Right. And so what I worry about is not some sort of intrinsic and moral dimension to a, a speci- specific uh, any technology, mm-hmm. but rather the the impacts of that technology that are that 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 I can understand and quantify and and that sort of thing. Yeah, and and so I want technologies that are that create the least disruption and the least environmental damage and the most sort of happiness. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And and so and. And that, that's the lens that I bring to the energy problem. And so if it's true that, that uh, and so, so fossil plus um, uh, uh, direct air capture and storage mm-hmm. um, makes the, the bundle carbon neutral, but there is still there's still problems associated with oil production. There's the physical stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, There's methane that may escape when you're drilling. There's, there's oil spills. There's sort of all kinds of extra stuff associated with that. Right. Naturally. Yeah. On the other hand, the other alternative I have for liquid fuels, which is to raise biofuels also has all kinds of negative externalities. Mm-hmm. It's also the case that it sucks arable land into fuels production and raises the cost of staples for poor people around the world. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, when you say arable land, do you mean land that could be vegetated and thus be helping fight this problem? Land that could grow crops. Okay. Okay. If you're going to be able to grow a lot of biomass, you could grow a lot of food biomass. Mm-hmm. And so if you start if you start making it more cost effective for farmers to want to switch into biofuels production, mm-hmm. you take land out of production, the prices go up and poor people suffer around the world. Also then with the extra demand for for price for 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 um, food that isn't being met causes the further deforestation of the remaining tropical forests and gives mm-hmm. biodiversity a whack. Yeah. And so those are two negative externalities that are associated with the so-called greener alternative. And for me, I just weigh those two mm-hmm. and I say, which one is least bad? Naturally. 
And I think the former is, is least bad. I think that, um, you know, there's this long history of human violence created by food price shocks. Yeah. And beyond that, we are living through uh, a, a mass extinction event. Extinction rates are 100 to 1,000 times background. Mm-hmm. If you destroy the remaining tropical forests, make no mistake, there will be a mass extinction. You'll lose something like half the species in the, on the planet. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's due to the biodiversity in that region, too. Yeah, I mean, that's right. That region is so incredibly biodiverse. Uh, can, can we combat a large chunk of climate change by simply reforesting large portions of the world? What can reforestation do for us? Well, well, so so I believe that, um, and this this uh, I just um, a, a National Academy report on negative emissions technologies was just released that I chaired, right? And mm-hmm. so that this this report concludes that a substantial amount can be done, but significantly less than many a- analysts um, conclude. So I think a few billion metric tons of CO2 could be mitigated to negative emissions could be offset in this mm-hmm. way. And and that's out of a total of close to 50 if you include the non-CO2 gases and 35 billion metric tons if you include just CO2. So a few, you know, a handful, two, yeah. three on the outside, maybe one. Mm-hmm. Now, some analysts say, well, no, you could get 10. But they do so by, for instance, using a large fraction of the agricultural land on the planet. Yeah, which of course we can't afford to. Yeah, I think that's dangerous, right? So there's one recent paper uh, by a group led by people at the Nature Conservancy, and they conclude that the upper bound's around 10 billion metric tons. But they do so in the fine print by assuming that humanity is going to give up meat. Yeah, and so we can convert all our pasture lands to forest. Yeah, this is a complex system, and a lot of people don't like that. This is a complex system. A lot of people don't actually like interpreting complex systems at all. Uh, I had a nonlinear scientist on here, and he studies for a living non-complex systems, nonlinear systems, and a lot of these decisions we simply don't know their impact. That's right. We don't, and and there's no real way, and people don't like to hear this, but there's no real way to quantify some things, some impacts, until it's done. Because you know, you, you do do you do modeling of systems in your work? I'm a person, and I do modeling for a living. Can you repeat? I we had a connection issue there for a second. Oh, so uh, I, I'm a mathematical scientist. I do yep. modeling for a living. Yes, right? so, that's what I thought. So, yeah. So y- yes, and uh, as an undergrad, as an undergraduate in college, I did a lot of you know modeling of complex systems, and uh, you know, with the same inputs, it's very possible in a system as big as our society, as diverse and as complex and as chaotic, it's possible that you'll get different results sometimes. And it's also possible that you can't predict the results you'll get. You know, even so, you have to be really careful about the decisions you make, but at the same time, you shouldn't let that fact deter you from making decisions, right? It's a fine line you have to ride where you have to pick, you have to pick a decision 
that you think will have the least amount of changes and the most beneficial ones. And you have to try to run with that, that system. But there's no saying that that system is going to give you good results. And that's why we just have to keep moving and keep trying different things. But we cannot shell up, shut down government and, uh, and quit because you know, even if a bad decision, even if a bad decision gets made and we, we see negative consequences due to that, we have to be willing to correct it. And our inability to correct our own mistakes is at the forefront of the climate issue, I think. We don't like to admit that we made a big mistake. We didn't know it. We were ignorant to the fact that, you know, driving around a bunch of cars and putting the carbon into the atmosphere is a bad idea. Were there many people? Let me just push back a yeah. little bit. Was it a bad idea? Well, I, this is I from a societal standpoint, absolutely not. It was necessary. It was a necessary uh, evolution of the human species to get us where we are today. In that regard, it was not a bad idea. Yeah, um, it brought us the industrial revolution yes. and all of the prosperity that no one I know is almost no one is willing to give up. Yeah, no, I agree with you a hundred percent. I agree with you one hundred and twenty percent. Um, but we couldn't foresee the negative consequences right. of some that of the actions we took. Absolutely true. We couldn't foresee it, and the reason we couldn't foresee it is is number one, we were you know scientifically illiterate, if you will, at the time uh, in in regards to what we know now. I mean, we were certainly smart then for, for the time. But I mean, Arrhenius saw it in the 18, 1800s, right? So, can so, you, so it's been, you know, the, the, the greenhouse effect and the impact of CO2 on it is something that's long been forecasted. Mm -hmm. But it's also really complicated, right? And it wasn't science. Don't forget that the, the perturbation we have to the energy balance of the Earth is like a 1% perturbation, mm -hmm. okay? Now, it just so happens that temperature is so finely connected, the weather is so finely, climate is so finely connected to humanity's well-being that that 1% perturbation turns out to be significant for us. Yeah. But the capacity to predict any physical system within 1% is, is hard, right? Exactly, and, yeah. Yeah, and so it just took a long time before the the qualitative observation could be turned into um, a quantitative prediction mm -hmm. and before the mounting effects of CO2 became large enough that we could quantify them and understand them. So, so, um, so, you know, this is the development of the science took some time. Yeah. And, you know, speaking from experience, I work on the modeling of black holes of binary black holes and you might see these beautiful videos in the news or, you know, if you're listening, you might have read articles about this type of modeling. Yeah, it's, I have. It's state of the art. But guess what? We ignore so much stuff. We simply have to because the real world is way too complex for even the best computers in the world to handle. Um, I work at uh, the Rochester Institute of Technology. In the group I work at, we have the biggest allocation on the blue water supercomputer in the entire world right now we have the largest allocation and guess what even that can't help us model the entirety of the system of, of surrounding a black hole it is complex it is incredibly complex and climate science is just as complex but 
what I think people do a lot is they say, well, that system's complex. Scientists have a hard time understanding it. Therefore, what scientists think must be wrong. But to that I say, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And that's a quote by someone that I don't know. But it's, I didn't make it up. I know it's really clever, but I can't take credit for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. At the same time, um, um, the, the thing that, that happens with models is that we keep raising the bar on them. Exactly. So, so a bunch of years ago, we would have said, you know, it would be fantastic if we could start um, uh, a, a computer representation of the Navier-Stokes equations that governs fluid flows in yep. the atmosphere and in the oceans. Mm -hmm. And we could put it on a spinning uh, sphere and, and turn the lights on, turn the sun on yeah. with continents in the right place and get what looks like you know, the right ocean currents mm -hmm. and the right climate approximately. Yeah. And, and, you know, back in the, in the 1960s, we did that and it kind of worked, but it was awful lot. And the mm -hmm. climate would drift out, you know, and it was a success. And slowly but surely, those kinds of models have improved to the point where, where you know, uh, maybe 10 years ago they started, the resolutions got good enough, the models got good enough that El Nino and La Nina started spontaneously as a nonlinear phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? With, you know, just emerged as a property of the system. Work put into the models just happened. Yeah. I've got this, um, I work on, on uh, 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 climate models uh, uh, here, a thing called the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab, which is located next to the Princeton University campus, but is the NOAA, primary NOAA modeling, uh, uh, climate modeling facility. Mm -hmm. And they in, have historically invented the, the mathematical cores for, for climate models, um, including, I think, the first coupled uh, climate model that predicts global warming but also the hurricane models and everything else. And we've got this stretch grid model uh, that GFDL does where, where um, you can have a fine resolution over some place and a coarser resolution elsewhere. So they made it real fine over the United States. And, 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 uh, and you turn the climate model on and you look at Oklahoma and you say, what the heck is that thing? And mm -hmm. then you realize the climate model is starting to make tornadoes. Yeah. They just spontaneously emerge mm -hmm. as part of a complicated unbelievably complicated consequence counterintuitive of the navier stokes equations which are themselves very simple yeah you know and elegant yes yeah and so and the point is we keep raising the bar so that now climate models predict the climate everywhere within one percent i mean it's mm -hmm. unbelievable and 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 yet we still say oh that's no good <laughs> i want yeah. it to be better and and now climate models are merging with weather models are actually being able to be used to predict the weather and a hurricane frequencies and stuff like that mm -hmm. and we keep saying oh climate models stink you know <laughs> we're, we're always going to say that <laughs> okay. yes because we always raise the bar on what we want same with your black hole business you know one of my prized possessions are chandra sekar's early papers on black holes mm -hmm. you know and and um, and um, you know they're amazing, and yet you would consider that work unbelievably primitive, yes, relative to what you now are able to do. Yeah, because that's how science flows, right? Science yeah. will always flow in that direction. We we will always. But what's important is that as we move along further, say from the 1960s to now, in any given field. 
the questions start to build up. There starts to be more questions. But the reason there's more questions is because we understand things better. And we can start to hammer down the fine details. So I urge anyone listening to, and I don't, you know, this might even be an echo chamber in the regard that I might not be able to communicate with people who deny climate change. But if there is anyone there, I I assure you that there's there's a stigma, actually, that I'll bring up quick. The stigma in the Yale Climate Survey really touches on this, if you look at the statistics. There's belief amongst the public, a large portion of the public, actually. I, I think in some regions it's as high as 60 or 70 percent that scientists disagree about whether or not climate change is happening. Is that true as someone in the field? It, do you encounter many people who are like, wait a minute, these are just natural fluctuations in the temperature of the earth. Sit down and you, you, you don't know what you're doing. You're wasting your time. Do you ever encounter that? Well, um, I do because I know some of the prominent deniers. But, but, but the important thing to understand is that every, just about every, so, so there are many, many points here. The first point is that the way to make it as a scientist is to show that everyone else is wrong. All right. Mm-hmm. Not show that everyone else is right. It's why conspiracy claims of conspiracy are ludicrous. All the incentives are on the opposite side. Exactly. Right? If there yeah. were conspiracy, I would a Nobel Prize by breaking it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, you know, it's like every incentive, every way to get famous and rich as a scientist, everything you want, mm-hmm. you know, makes conspiracy impossible. It points in the opposite direction from conspiracy. But it's also true that because of the adversarial nature of science. We've set up adversarial, you know, institutions in science. That's why a peer review is anonymous, you mm-hmm. know? And and so it means that controversies um, are, are settled generationally. And so eventually the opposing side doesn't quit. The last ones die. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's what happens, okay? The last ones die. We see this... <laughs> You know, again, again, you see with evolution, we see it with continental drift, you know, there are all these uh-huh. examples, right? And so there are, um, um, there are, there is a handful of, of uh, shiny credentialed people who, who question the science, but it's no larger than in other areas. There are prominent scientists who, um, who, who who have believed that HIV didn't cause AIDS, that the evidence mm-hmm. was good enough. Um, the, there's a prominent uh, climate change uh, questioner who's a, uh, you know, these they're, they're generally at this point people at the end or past the end of their careers, right? They're emeritus people. Mm-hmm. And, and um, one of the prominent ones has just extremely tight evidentiary standards, doesn't believe that there's strong evidence that smoking causes okay and so is, is heterogeneous and 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 um the presence of deniers uh, on the opposite side of some settled issue is the norm mm-hmm. but it's only a, a couple right it's only a handful the, the thing i always look for when i want to know if some area is settled is i look at and say where do the young people like you go you're young and ambitious as a scientist, and you want to you want to you want to show that everyone is wrong about something, and you want to show what's right. 
And, and, and you look at climate change and you review the evidence and you say, nah, it's too strong. I'm not going there. And so the lack of shiny, credentialed, ambitious, super smart young scientists on the opposite side of an issue, mm -hmm. it's fatal. It means it's over. Yeah. Because if there was any way in, the most ambitious would be going for it. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely yeah. It's actually a, a, a very good, very good argument. And I'm but sure that at the same time, the existence of a few holdouts on the other side who are slowly winding towards the hereafter is not also very surprising. That's the norm with scientific controversies. Yeah. And this isn't being ageist. This is just the nature of science, mm -hmm. right? That uh, debates are fiercely fought because the system is adversarial. It's making conspiracy impossible. Yeah. And that means that, that um, there, there is a group that is socialized to hold out till the bitter end, right? Yeah. Well, they have life's work. They have life's work. They, they poured their life into something. And no matter what it is that you do, if you pour your life into it, you don't want to see it fail. And even though scientists are supposed to be, you know, unbiased and, and look at the evidence, there's a lot of people who are married to an idea and they, they don't want to see their lives work, you know, go into the ashes, if you will. Yeah, and, 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 and some of the prominent contrarians, I respect as mm -hmm. scientists. I'm just, at, at this point, really certain that they're wrong on this issue, okay? Yeah. But I understand why they're still trying to tough it out. They also probably love... They lost, right? Yeah, they probably love the attention that it might get them as well, I imagine. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't I, I don't want to go beyond the, uh, the armchair psychologizing of it, beyond the fact that the, the historical observation, the observation that, yeah. that there have to be, in any dispute, the last people that get convinced are... Mm -hmm. Look like dead enders. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do way too much armchair psychologying. Way too much. And also, I'm sure that 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 uh, guy who <laughs> denies smoking causes lung cancer smokes a pack of Winston's every day, and he's just he does. He's just trying <laughs> he to hide does. it. Yeah, you know, no, he's, he he's shoving down a couple Marlboros at, at lunch. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> no, he does. Right? And yeah, I think it's great. You know, that's <laughs> okay. So anyway. Yeah, and so it, it's just a very interesting uh, – very... did you see – I was looking at the news yesterday and I saw this. There's a company I think based out of Denver called Xcel Energy and they're a utility company and, and they, they pledged to eliminate all carbon emissions from their electrical generation by 2050. Did you see that? I saw that. I saw that, yeah. So you we, we have – we not only have companies that are trying to, you know, come up with these carbon capture and storage facilities but we also have companies who are who are acknowledging this and and maybe even in the face of being able to make short term gains are saying no 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 we we have to do something here do, does that inspire you does that give you some comfort well yeah i mean the the fact is that that it's just true in the last couple of years that i could say in a program like this if we swapped our emitting energy system out for the following energy system that we could purchase right now, mm -hmm. the consumer impact would be essentially zip. 
Okay. Yep. I can say that now. And, and, and so I think that together with the ongoing, um, uh, build up of climate damages means that it's inevitable that we're going to switch and companies are forced to make evidence-based decisions. And if they're, if they're uh, power companies, they make decisions that last 30 years. Mm-hmm. All right. And so if I'm such a company, do I want to invest in a bunch of coal plants right now? I mean, do, do, am I really going to put a bunch of pulverized coal plants out there? I would. I, now, I'm not in the business world, but I would advise against it. Yeah. The, well, the, they, the, the, they, the, 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 these companies are all voting with their feet on that one. They're not. They're not building coal plants. That's why coal is is falling off now. Maybe. Um, Somebody will invent a magic technology. I fervently hope so. You know, there's a there's something you should look up on the web. Um, uh, if and anybody who's listening, there's a there's a company called Net Power, N E T P O W E R, in Houston, and they've come up with a new design called an alum cycle for a power plant, and it's it's just mad cool. What it, what is this? What is it? So. So, running in Houston right now, and and the thing freaking works, right? There's a couple of uh, little things to, to. So here's the way it works. Uh, you can think of it as since you since a bunch of science uh, people probably um, oh listen to this. Um, it's it's you can think of it almost like a tokamak. There's mm-hmm. a fluid going around and around and around and around and around and around. In, in, a, in a little donut for people who aren't it, necessarily. Yeah, in this case, it's a, it looks like a lollipop, okay? okay. Yeah, but it's a donut. And, a, and the, the fluid, though, is super critical CO2 mm-hmm. that's hot, okay? So it's CO2 compressed to the density of oil but is still a gas, and it's hot. Mm-hmm. And it's flowing around this thing. Now um, – at the head of the lollipop, there's an oxygen separation unit that pulls oxygen, pure oxygen, out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And there's a little natural gas injector. And oxygen plus methane gets injected into this fluid right before a turbine that is able to combust the methane and the oxygen because they're right close to one another. And, mm-hmm. it's and because both of them are pure you end up with um, pure CO2 just added to the supercritical CO2 stream and, and some water, mm-hmm. okay, it's from, burning the, uh, right, from burning the hydrogens on the methane. Yeah. And then this thing races around and goes to the, to the stem of the lollipop, and that stem is a countercurrent heat exchanger, mm-hmm. cools as it goes down the stem, then it turns around and it picks up the heat from the descending arm back up to the loop, mm-hmm. you see? And, and when it cools, it uh, condenses out the water. A little bit of water dribbles out. And, and the CO2 goes around and around and around and around like that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, the C- and so there's no phase change in this machine, all right? There's no, like, steam is condensed. Mm-hmm. So the efficiency is much, much, much higher. And the efficiency is so high that it pays for the oxygen separation, right? Yeah, kind of. Mm -hmm. You still have this extremely high efficiency plant, but notice there's nothing emitted. Yeah. Supercritical CO2 you can put in a pipe. It's already compressed and injected into a hole where you got the natural gas from. Mm -hmm. 
goes back to the reservoir. There's no products of combustion. The only thing this emits is a little bit of water vapor, a little bit of water, right, liquid yeah. water. It is pure. Mm -hmm. And so if this machine can be uh, perfected, it means that carbon capture becomes free. And also, it should be possible to gasifying the coal at the front end. And if that could happen, you got a coal plant that was as cheap as a coal plant, mm -hmm. but didn't emit anything, that could really change the world. By yeah. making it possible, for instance, for China mm -hmm. to use its coal reserves. Oh my God, China. It, for Look up a coal town in China people listening look up a picture of a coal town in china that will change your perception of the world just by looking at these people these poor people have to live in a very very bad environment look up and you'll maybe it'll actually improve your understanding of why burning coal is getting phased out across the world if you look up a pic it's it's incredible it's incredible that they're subjecting themselves to this pollution and not doing anything about it I, I lived in central Pennsylvania for a long time, my whole life, Where? actually, and um, in the coal region of central Pennsylvania. What's town? Uh, as, a, as a child, I grew up in Shemokin, Pennsylvania. I know Shemokin. Yep, and then as a, as a college student, I lived in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I know Williamsport so, really well. So, I grew up in Lewisburg. Oh, did you? Look at that. So, very close, very close. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Lewisburg essentially connects those two towns if you if you drive a certain way. But one of the things I noticed during the 2016 election was Donald Trump running on this sort of idea to bring coal back um, and or to, to lower regulations on coal miners. And the Pennsylvanians absolutely loved the idea. They loved it. That might be the thing that won him a large portion of votes in the central Pennsylvania area because it was an area that was flourishing in the 1900s due to coal. Coal created so many boom towns up and down central Pennsylvania, towns whose entire economy was hedging on the fact that there was coal underneath the ground. And then when that coal dried up, the towns dried up. And the people living in these towns think that if we can bring coal mining back, we can bring back prosperity to the places in which they live. They think that if coal comes back, poverty goes away. Or if coal comes back, then happiness comes back as well. I saw it happening to the individuals that lived in these areas, and I thought it was incredibly interesting. But coal isn't coming back, and I tried telling them that. Coal is not well. Maybe if your circumstance, if the circumstance you're talking, and Still, what, that gas is better fuel for it. We've got super abundant gas in this country. So, yeah. what was the name of that company again in Houston? Net Power. Okay, because it, here's why I ask. My mom has gotten into stock bro or uh, investing in stocks recently, and I don't know if you can invest in this company, but I'm sure she would be love to. She messages me like three times a day lately. She's like, "What do you think about Intel? What do you think about Amazon?" What do you think about Verizon? I power really closely as well, I got to say. There's a few glitches yet. Uh, you know, for those of you who are into this sort of thing, um, apparently the, there's still an issue with the metallurgy of the turbine blades because 
there's water vapor that's created with this oxygen plus methane combustion. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at 900 degrees Celsius, water is, is bad for, for metals, yeah. right? So some, there's some metallurgy that needs to be done. And I guess there's some work, not too surprisingly, on the heat exchanger. That sucker's got to work well to make yeah. this thing work. Um, but, but it's running, and, you know, it's right out of the box this thing runs. So, so um, uh, take a look on the web. They have good um, – you know, they have videos and cartoons about mm-hmm. how it works and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put a link down below in the description for those of you who want to want to check that out. I encourage you to. Uh, before we let you go, Steve, I want to ask you a few questions sent in by the Patreon supporters and the fans. Great. Um, so I'll just ask a few. Do you think – this is one question. Do you think combating climate change can in any way unite the world like we haven't seen before? And I guess what they're talking about is you have these large conferences happening. In fact, one right now in Poland, I believe, where you have world leaders from all over getting together to try to combat this issue and working actually as a unit in some sense. Um, not all countries are, are abiding, but but nevertheless, you, you have a little bit of it. What do you think? Well, um, I, I think that this is an area where cooperation is essential because of the the fact that the atmosphere is a commons right mm-hmm. and and uh, you know my my emissions affect china as much as they affect me right because the co2 goes everywhere and so this is one of those problems that has to be addressed collectively mm-hmm. and I, I suppose at some level the existence of those problems those kinds of problems are are one of the main engines for cooperation right and so, so at one level, yes, <clears throat> but at another level, um, it's really important to be pragmatic about how we can can get this problem solved, and not to, to believe that a level of cooperation will exist that is absolutely unprecedented. I think we need to be as pragmatic as possible in deciding what we need to agree to. One of the reasons that the Paris Agreement came to an agreement that they had taken the lessons that political scientists and others have learned about what doesn't work mm-hmm. right, when you're trying to get a cooperative agreement. And that's, that's why the, many of the aspects of Paris are what, are what they are. For instance, the lack of binding targets with sanctions. That's sort of mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and the U.S. is planning to leave the Paris Accord. Is that correct? Well, um, the Trump administration has has announced that they plan to withdraw, but legally, they can't do so until after the next election. Right. We'll we'll see. Yeah. Okay. On to the next question. Thanks for sending in your questions, people. If you want to send in questions, go to Patreon.com/slash The State of the Universe. You have to spend some money. A dollar. if you're rich, maybe $50. I don't know. That's up to you. But anyway, or or you can just go on my website, go to the contact form, and send me an email. That happens too, and I'll be happy to answer your question on the show with my guest. Anyway, this is the next question. Is there enough space to store all of the carbon that is being captured because humans have put a lot of emissions into the atmosphere? Yeah, so so the I mean that's a great question. Um, the uh, and it's been looked at for um, 
more than 20 years. And, and the short answer is um, that there is an enormous amount of space in so-called saline aquifers, which are the kind of formations where we got the uh, oil and gas from to, be, to begin mm -hmm. with. They're formations where the rock is porous and you can inject this stuff in, um, sometimes to replace the gas and oil that you've pulled out, right? Mm -hmm. And other times just um, uh, because it's possible to do. And there's a cap rock that keeps the stuff from escaping. And mm -hmm. that's why there's been oil and gas under there for 200 million years. It hasn't been able to get out, right? Yeah. But in addition, there are some other options that are emerging. It turns out that there have been a couple of trials where it turns out that CO2 isn't the bottom of the energy well, that uh, it will react spontaneously with minerals to create carbonate minerals, and sometimes very quickly. So there have been a couple of injections into basalt formations that where the CO2 has mineralized quickly, yeah. and there are huge basalt formations um, uh, distributed around the planet from old you know, giant volcanic eruptions. Mm -hmm. So... There's a group of, of rocks that are called ultramafic rocks, peridotites and whatnot, that collectively within a kilometer of the surface total enough to remove all of the CO2 from the atmosphere like a thousand times. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that if we can catch it, we'll figure out a place to put it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Yeah, can blast it off into the sun. I don't know. I, I wonder if that's an effect. I, I wonder one day if that's how what we're going to do with our waste. Just blast it off into the sun or, or blast it off into interstellar space. We're well, really, it takes a lot of energy. We need a space elevator. Yeah, it does take a lot of energy, but we, we're going to get increasingly better at doing this space flight thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's going to happen because of industry, because of subsidizing industry. The exact same thing that will ideally influence american companies to change the way they deal with carbon emissions uh, yeah i should say also that if you ask why is it that that um, wind and solar are the cheapest forms of energy and the answer is it's 40 years of subsidy mm -hmm. that created a market for wind and solar when they couldn't have competed in the open market and this allowed capitalism to do what it does best a million little firms competing against one another on price drove the cost down relentlessly so now it's the cheapest form of energy with an incalculable payback to the u.s economy mm -hmm. same thing for natural gas natural gas is super abundant because in large part is to a significant part because we subsidized unconventional gas for 20 years when it was uneconomic. And now look at the payback to the U.S. economy. And so subsidies work because they unleash capitalism. Subsidies aren't the enemy of capitalism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the important, important point. The, the lesson that we take from, from past U.S. investment in energy is that at least. I'm sure there are places where subsidies don't work. But in this space... They have worked fantastic. If, if our stock portfolios had done as well as that, we'd all be very, very happy and deeply rich too. Yeah, it, we, it, it absolutely needs to be subsidized in some way, right? It, it's, it's like you know, giving money to a, a kid who has a good idea. Let him yeah. run with it. See what, see what he can produce. Maybe he'll waste it all. Maybe he'll go to the strip club. No, I, no one knows. But at the end of the day, maybe we'll have something to show for it. 
Maybe that man will produce a, a, something I can attach to my air conditioner that I can take to the grocery oh. store, you know. I don't know. But one more question. Yeah. And, and then we'll cut you loose. I, I thank you for, for participating and for answering these questions. This question uh, says, the media often shows that environmental efforts are being harmed by Donald Trump's presidency. And, uh, sorry, mumbling. So have you noticed a decrease in funding or resources given to climate science since the 2016 election? Um, um, well, you know, the Congress controls the purse. And so Congress significantly funding. Um, uh, uh, Donald Trump has called for significantly decreased funding. Mm -hmm. the, the impact that, that Donald Trump has had primarily is in announcing executive actions to weaken regulations. And many of those are still, most of those are still tied up in court. Yeah. Okay. Um, me personally, I've never had a lot of trouble obtaining funding. And so I haven't seen um, any um, any problems personally. Yeah, there you go. Thanks for sending in questions, people. We're, we're not going to get to many more. I appreciate you sending in those questions. Continue to send in more social media. It doesn't matter where you send them. I'll try to get them answered. And I thank you all for listening. And, and Steve, I thank you for being here, for participating, educating the world about carbon capture initiatives and climate science. It's necessary. I seem to talk about it with every guest I have on, no matter if they're a biologist, no matter if they're you know, expert in space flight or complex systems or chemistry. I, climate science is everywhere. Every scientist has it on their mind in some way. Every scientist is dealing with it in some way. So I appreciate you all for listening. I appreciate you all for being here. You're all great, and we're out.